you have your Bibles, open to 2 Samuel chapter 16 as we continue our study of the life of David. Um, this morning we'll be looking at God's purpose in the presence of enemies. Now, as, as for those to our, that are catching up, last week we were in 2 Samuel 15, and it focused on David's faith in the midst of crisis as he leaves Jerusalem once he hears of Absalom, his son's coronation over in Hebron. David flees. The writer there focused on David's faith and those that continue to support him and give him aid in his crisis. Those friends come from unlikely sources like Ittai, uh, the Philistine from Gath. It came from religious leaders like Abiathar and Zadok the priests and David's friend Hushai. In direct contrast to those that supported David, chapter 16 is going to focus on those that are David's enemies. David writes about his escape from his enemies in Psalm 3, as I mentioned last week. David says this in Psalm 3, he says as he escapes Jerusalem, he says, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. And then David says, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Now, though David does not name his enemies in Psalm 3, we know who they are in, Psalm 16, in uh, 2 Samuel 16. Some of David's enemies are subtle and sly. Some are stupid and rash. And others, well, others are named Absalom and Ahithophel. And we will deal with them next week. But here are the enemies we're going to see today. We're going to see Ziba, who is the servant of Mephibosheth, who is King Saul's remaining grandson, and Shemai, a Benjamite, who is also from the family of King Saul. Though David's enemies will rise up, you need to know that God's sovereign purposes will prevail. And so let's look at 2 Samuel 16. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, and we have three major sections as we look at David's enemies. The first one I want you to notice is Ziba, who takes advantage. Ziba, who takes advantage. Look at verses 1 through 4. It says, when David had passed a little beyond the summit, that's him crossing over the Mount of Olives and leaving Jerusalem. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys, saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? And Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, behold, he, that's Mephibosheth, behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, 
my Lord the King. Now, as we get here to the story, we first met this character Ziba back in 2 Samuel 9 when King David was looking for some way to keep his covenant promise of love to Jonathan, Saul's son. He was looking for someone from the house of Jonathan that he could show the Hesed love, the covenant faithfulness of God to. It was there that we're introduced to this servant of Saul, Ziba, and that was a subtle clue that Ziba may not have the best intentions concerning David as he was faithful to the previous regime. This is why we should know that looks can be deceiving. I mean, here Ziba gives the appearance of someone who is generous. He has provisions. He has donkeys. He has food prepared for David as he passes by the summit of the Mount of Olives. And this is no small gift. I'm sure the elderly and the women traveling with David will appreciate the donkeys and the provisions. But notice that David is suspicious. He asks two probing questions. Number one, Ziba, why have you brought these? Why have you brought these to me? The second question is, where is your master's son? Where's Mephibosheth? Right? David knows that Ziba was loyal to Saul. And David wants to know where Mephibosheth is as David is fleeing. David had commanded Ziba to take care of Mephibosheth. Remember, that's the point. John, he's crippled in both feet. He sits at David's table as one of his sons. David has basically adopted Mephibosheth, and David wants to know where he is. He's asking, why isn't Mephibosheth willing to repay David's kindness by going into exile with him? Does he think Absalom will be more merciful than David? So Ziba provides David an answer. Mephibosheth stayed in Jerusalem. Look at the reason. This is what Mephibosheth supposedly tells Ziba. Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. <laughs> well, that's certainly no way to pay back David's kindness. And that's very strange logic. Why is that strange logic? Well, because Absalom isn't rebelling for the sake of Saul. Right? Absalom has already been crowned king in Hebron. Absalom isn't going to walk into Jerusalem and say, Hey, Mephibosheth, here's the crown. You can have the kingdom back. That's not what's going to happen. So David seems here, according to Ziba, to have been betrayed by both Absalom and Mephibosheth, another one of his sons. In light of this story, Ziba is who appears to be the faithful and loyal servant to David. I mean, just look at all the evidence in front of David, from the donkeys to the food to the provisions. Look at the story he's provided. Ziba appears to be telling the truth, but he's not. It's a masterful bit of storytelling by the writer of Samuel because if you've read the rest of the story, you know that Ziba's full of it. Like, turn over to chapter 19 and look at verses 24 through 28. This is fast-forwarding to when David returns after Absalom is taken care of and Mephibosheth comes to meet King David as he comes back into the city. Look what it says there in verse 24 in chapter 19. It says, And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed. That's the day we're on back in chapter 16. 
till the day the king came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant, that's Ziba, deceived me, for your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. And he slandered your servant, that's Mephibosheth, Ziba has slandered Mephibosheth to my lord the king. And then look at this reason. But my lord the king is like an angel of God. Do therefore whatever seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. And he says, what further right have I then to cry out to you? So Ziba back in chapter 16, is taking advantage of a crisis for his own benefit. Just think, if Absalom, just put yourself in Ziba's shoes. If Absalom wins this civil war, then Ziba has stolen a large portion of property from Mephibosheth. If David prevails, then Ziba has David's favor by appearing generous to King David as he leaves. But unfortunately... Due to the stress of the situation and David's inability to check Ziba's story because he's fleeing from Absalom, Ziba prevails and takes advantage of David. The ruse is successful. David gives Ziba all of Mephibosheth's property. But when we meet Mephibosheth in chapter 19, he doesn't care about that. He's like, let the king do whatever he wants. I'm glad you're back safely. Now, our world is filled with people who love a good crisis to take advantage of. But let's not just point our finger towards those people out there. Listen, we can all be tempted to take advantage of others in their crisis or in their ordinary course of life. Spouses can do this by taking advantage of one another. Parents can do this with their children. Children can do this with their aging parents. Business owners can do this by taking advantage of their employees or seeking to swindle their customers. Pastors and politicians can do this by treating others as simply a means to their own selfish ends. Anyone can act like Zeba if you do not treat people as those created in the image of God. All of us can be tempted to do this. I was reading in my studies this week and came across a story from the Revolutionary War when we were fighting for our independence from Great Britain regarding the horrible winter that the Continental Army had suffered at Valley Forge. And the story goes like this, quote, listen to this story. Clothes were so threadbare and blankets so rare that the troops, the American troops, often sat up all night rather than fall asleep and freeze to death. Lafayette saw um, there were soldiers whose legs had frozen black and they had to be taken to hospitals for amputation. And the story says, why such suffering? He says, it was not, that the, it was not the severe winter, for the winter was actually mild by Pennsylvania standards. But soldiers went hungry and froze because nearby farmers preferred to sell to the British in Philadelphia for hard cash. The, army, the American army was half naked because merchants in Boston refused to, quote, 
move government clothing off their shelves at anything less than profits ranging from 1,000 to 1,800% profit. Seemed like there were plenty of zebas around during those days, taking advantage of the situation. Their motto was never let a good crisis go to waste. So Zeba here takes advantage of David. He doesn't look like an enemy, but he is. Number two, notice Shimei takes vengeance. Shimei takes vengeance. Look at verses eight through eight, uh, 5 through 8. It says, when King David came to Bahurim, that's on the way out of, out, of, out of Jerusalem, there came out of a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And he came and he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shammai said as he cursed, Get out! Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man! The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See... Your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. And then look at verse 13. So David and his men went on the road, while Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. Almost here as a quasi-confirmation of Ziba's story, right? Ziba says that Saul's tribe is trying to retake the throne. David meets on his descent... Um, out of Jerusalem, another Benjamite from Saul's extended family. His name is Shammai, and he's filled with two things, anger and theology. And I want you to know that those two things never mix well. You find it very often that people try to mix anger and theology. They do not mix well. He's hurling, he's hurling curses and stones at David as he's surrounded by 600 mighty men in his family. He's got the Palathites, the Carathites, and the Gittites surrounding him. His family's in the middle. They're going through the Kidron Valley, hills on both sides. David's marching towards the Jordan. And you got this Benjamite on the hilltop hurling stones and curses at David. Listen, Shimei is right on the fine line between bravery and stupidity. They're not very far from each other sometimes. Right, parents? Y'all raise teenagers? Bravery and stupidity, very close to each other, okay? So Shimei here does something. He accuses David of being a man of blood who's brought this very judgment on him because of what happened to the house of Saul. Now, the Benjamite party line, since the day of Saul's death, has been, it's David's fault. David shouldn't be king. Somebody from the house of Saul should be king. After all, David had been fighting for and raiding with the Philistines. And this is why the author of 2 Samuel has gone through great pains to argue that David was completely innocent in Saul's death and in Jonathan's death, that he did not go out to Mount Gilboa that day and fight with the Philistines. In fact, David never did that. He raided outside of Israel. And David was not responsible either for the deaths of Ishbosheth or Abner. But that didn't stop the Benjamites from forming their own conspiracies 
and posting their stories on all their social media platforms. There weren't any then, guys. Okay? There weren't any. So what happens here is Shammai is taking advantage of the situation to meet out vengeance, to meet out his own vengeance. He's the classic guy who is kick them while they're down. Kick David while he's down. Now listen, he certainly didn't act this way toward David yesterday. He didn't come into Jerusalem while David was sitting on his throne kicking dust and throwing rocks. He waits on David to be fleeing. Now listen, we know that, right? It's much easier to heckle what looks like the losing team. Right? That's always much easier to heckle the losing team. And so Shemai here takes advantage. But don't you notice what David takes? And that's where we'll spend the rest of our time. David takes perspective. David chooses perspective. David chooses to look at the situation differently. Look at verses 9 through 12, right in the middle of that section. It says, Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, O sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, so David speaks to everyone, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for this cursing today. Now, remember who Abishai is as this story begins. Abishai is David's nephew. He's the brother of Joab, who is his general. And Abishai decides, after listening to all of this and having a few rocks clink off of his shield and being covered in a little dirt and spit, that Shammai is acting a little too tall. He's a little too big for his britches, and he needs to be cut down to size, literally. He asks David, David, let me just go over here and make this guy a little shorter. Okay? Now, I would say here that Abishai has discovered a novel scientific truth that headless bodies don't talk. Scientifically provable. But here it is that David offers an interesting reply. And let's look at this, and I want to point out a couple of things. Notice David's reply. First, this is where you really want to zone in, okay? First, David is willing, David says he's willing to bear this cursing as a part of God's discipline for him to go along with Absalom's rebellion over the sin that David has committed with Uriah and Bathsheba. David knows that God has promised to bring judgment for those sins, and Shammai is simply a part of it. In this sense, Shammai, in his judgment of David, is half right. The Lord is bringing vengeance on David, but Shammai is wrong about who it's for. Shammai argues that God's doing this to you because of Saul. And David's like, well, he's half right. God is bringing judgment on me, but it's not because of Saul. It's because of Uriah and Bathsheba. So, David doesn't need, David says here, he doesn't need to spill Shammai's blood if God is using this wicked, vile man to bring discipline on David. 
So that's the first thing. David says, I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to see this as a part of my own discipline for my sin. Sometimes we need to see that too in those that we deal with. Second, David also has a very practical perspective on what's happening. What does Shammai's cursing mean in the grand scheme of his own son betraying him? This is an argument from the lesser to the greater. What is this Benjamite in relation to my own son seeking my life? Think about that. David is saying, I can deal with disgruntled Benjamites who have always been disgruntled. They've never been happy. I can deal with them. I deal with them every day. My son seeking my life is a different thing altogether. Now hear me. We need sometimes the help of this kind of practical perspective in our lives. Our greatest enemies, hear me, the greatest enemies that we face in our lives are seldom those that make the most noise on hilltops. They're seldom those that kick up the most dust and throw the most rocks. That's meaningless compared to some of the real significant things we face in this life. Like, for example, the people in Kiev this morning that wake up to rockets flying into buildings. And we want to complain that there's a pothole in the middle of the street. I thought a few government officials might say amen to that. But that's the point, right? We need some practical perspective in our lives. Our biggest problems are seldom those things, right? Listen, listen. Dust devils are not hurricanes. There's a difference. And with the right perspective, you can tell the difference between them. Shemai is what we would call a tempest in a teapot in the grand scheme of what's going on in David's life. Listen, we need to remember the grand scheme of God's eternal purposes in the midst of life's problems and struggles. As, David, as Paul said in Romans 8.18... Paul says, you want some perspective? Here's some perspective. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul calls the sufferings of this world light and momentary in light of the glory of standing before King Jesus in the next age. So third and most importantly, look what David does. This is third. David not only takes a practical perspective, David has a sovereign grace perspective. Sovereign grace. Look at verse 12. That's the key. Verse 12 is the key. This shows us what David really thinks about who the Lord is. So if you ask this question, David, what is the nature and character of God? What is the nature and character of the God that you're in covenant with? What is the nature and character of the God who is in covenant with Israel and in covenant with us? Verse 12 gives a good answer. Look at verse 12. Every word. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for this cursing today. So what does David know God to be like? David knows that the Lord is a God of grace who can turn evil for good. That's what David knows about God. Our God is a God who can turn evil today for good. He can turn evil for all time for good. 
Even more than that, the Lord can turn even David's evil for good. Now that, as I close, should be an incredibly comforting verse for believers. May It may be that God will look on this evil done to me today and return it to me for good. Now that should be in your soul, should rise up to hallelujah. Why? Think about those of us who have made our lives very curse-worthy. Think about us who have made royal messes of our lives where we've earned every bit of the curses that are thrown at us from the outside. Those of us who have trashed God's commandments and had to walk a similar road of exile with our family and friends and had others shaking their head at us as we leave. Here's the gospel truth. David is forgiven. And if you are in Christ... You are forgiven. Amen? That is the gospel truth. Listen, if you are in Christ, you are forgiven. It is finished and it is done. What is happening today may be the consequences of sin, but your eternal destiny is never in question. We are so tempted to think That God simply tolerates our existence, but that He isn't really for us. That He's standing in judgment, waiting on you to screw up, so He can pour out all of His judgment and wrath on you. How seldom do you think that the evil you are facing, that God can turn for good? Listen, the story of the gospel is that what others and even ourselves may have meant for evil, God has meant for our good. God has a way of turning curses into our greatest blessings. I think Paul said something like this in Galatians 3 when he said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Think about that for a second. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. God turned Christ's cursing into our salvation and redemption. And David, here in Psalm, here in 2 Samuel 16, knew that's what the Lord was like. That the Lord is able to do that even now. It's a thousand years before Jesus steps on the scene and David says, the Lord that I'm in covenant with can turn evil for good. Shammai, let me tell you why he's wrong. Shammai here knows only a God of vengeance. Do you hear any grace in Shammai as he comes with his vitriol cursing God? Where's the saltiness of grace? Shammai knows only a God of vengeance, but not a God who is free to show unmerited favor. Shammai claims here to know precisely what God is doing and why God is doing it to David. He's not just wrong about David. He's wrong about God. The difference between David and Shammai is David allows God to be free to do as he pleases. Do you notice David's language? Let him curse. It may be that God will turn this for my good. God is free because he's God. He can do it if he so chooses. And if not, let him curse. I deserve it. It's okay. Listen. 
David knows that his only hope is the mercy of God. And I want to say this. Here's my last thing. David knows that his only hope is the mercy of God. And that same truth is true for every sinner that's ever lived. Your only hope is the mercy and grace of God. It is not in your goodness. It is not in the wickedness that you do or either is done to you. Our only hope is the mercy of God. The, the same is true for every sinner. Listen to me. Jesus, David's descendant, our Messiah and Lord. He was cursed. And he was spit upon. He was the real innocent one who was mistreated in our place. And who ultimately turned our cursing for our salvation. Do you know Him? Do you know Him? Because He's standing with arms open, ready to receive anyone who repents of their sin and comes to find mercy and grace in His arms. Would you pray with me? Father, pray You'd bless the preaching of Your Word. Lord, we ask that You would continue to speak now as we sing and as we turn our attention towards Your Spirit moving upon us. We pray this in Christ's name.